At 28 years old, I was shot and paralyzed from the chest down. I had two options. I could stop, and let the things I cannot control control me, or I could move forward and put my energy into things that would improve my life and those around me. I chose to move forward and surround myself with risk takers, innovators, and leaders who've chosen the same path. Join us on the journey. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Forward with me, Derek Herrera. Today's guest is none other than Bob Woodruff. Bob is a truly amazing person. He served as an award-winning journalist and combat correspondent until he suffered a severe injury in Iraq, uh, where he survived a massive explosion from an improvised explosive device. As he recovered and moved forward with his life, he started the Bob Woodruff Foundation, where he and his wife, Lee, have raised millions and millions of dollars to help support other veterans and bring awareness to veterans' issues. Uh, additionally, not only has he survived, but he's thrived moving forward and made a return to the big screen. Uh, he's filmed a variety of journalistic episodes and also a series uh, which he just launched called Rogue Trip, available on Disney+, Plus, where he and his son Mac travel on epic adventures across the globe. He's an all-around amazing human being, and I'm certain you'll enjoy this episode with Bob. We talk about some really important lessons, including things like quality versus quantity, meaning it's not the quantity of time you spend with your family or your kids, but the quality that you do that matters. How he found joy and purpose in his mission after he was injured and how he was able to change his perception to adapt to his new reality after encountering multiple setbacks and goals that he missed and failed to achieve in his recovery due to things being outside his control, how he understood that he had to adapt and understand his environment and that he couldn't hold himself always to the same standard that he did before his injury. If you have any questions about the podcast, please feel free to email me forward at DerekCarrera.com or fill out a contact form on my personal website, DerekCarrera.com. You can also message me directly on Instagram or LinkedIn. And lastly, if you enjoy this podcast, I ask that you leave us a short review and give us a rating, preferably five stars. Only take a minute. And enough if enough of you do this, it'll collectively help us scale our impact and reach new audiences. So thank you for listening. And I'm looking forward to sharing this episode with you. Bob. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Derek. Congratulations on getting this going. Thank you. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a long time coming, and, and really excited to to push these interviews out and share them with people who can hopefully benefit. So, really appreciate you coming on and making time to to share your story with us. And so, to get started, really interested about career changes. And so, you you've been through a variety of of transitions, going from lawyer to ABC news anchor, from news anchor to author to nonprofit leader and these sorts of things. What was it like being a lawyer? And, and then, you know, what made you just determine to leave that line of work to go be a, a news anchor? You know, that's a, that's a good question. I'll tell you first that my, my father used to tell me, please don't become a lawyer. So maybe that's why I became a lawyer. 
you know, when I came out, when I got out of law school back in 1987, I was, you know, I had this great chance to go to a very large law firm in New York to start doing since the, since the money was better to pay back all my debts that uh, I went and I did uh, mergers and acquisitions with a large firm there. And the market kind of collapsed at the end of that year. So nobody was getting let go. It just got so boring. I decided to take a year off and do something I'd been wanting to do for a long time is to go over and teach teach law in China, to teach these young law students in China about the, the Western world and the new reality that they're now emerging into as the, as the Mao Zedong heirs in China, era of China is really kind of withering down under Deng Xiaoping. So I thought I want to get a chance to go teach them about that. And that was 1988. And one of the biggest changes in our life is that at the end of that year in Beijing is the Tiananmen Square massacre happened in China. I don't know how many of the younger listeners out there know about it, but back back then China uh, cracked down on protests on the street of China and really it ended in the death of hundreds of young Chinese. So it became a huge story. I was got a chance to go work for CBS News because they needed somebody to get them around the city. And I knew it well, and I spoke the language okay. So they brought me in to work with, with Bob Simon and, and get the chance to go and get them around the town. And that completely changed my view. I got this addiction to to doing exactly what they were doing. You know, and that was the anchor, Dan Rather was there too. And I was working with him and I thought, this is a great chance. So I came back, practice two more years. And finally I said, you know what? I'm gonna give it a shot. Take a gigantic pay cut and try something I wanted to do. My son, our son, Mon, uh, man, Mac was built. I'm sorry, I get speak right now. Our son, Mac, was born. And so we decided now's the time to go and take this risk and do something that I've always wanted to do and get out of the, the business world and, and see if I can give this a shot. And so we did and then didn't leave since 30 years ago. Wow. That's awesome. And so, so you and Lee were married before you left for yeah, China we got, or when did you all get- We got married the two days before we moved over there. She wouldn't, she said she wouldn't go there to China with me. I told her, come on, it's a great chance. You know, we're dating at the time. Come on, go to China. We'll live there for a year. She goes, no, only she didn't really say absolutely have to get married, but it was a slightly different era back then too. And, and uh, she said, I need to have some kind of commitment. I'm not going to leave my job because she was a, actually a pretty high level one in the, in the PR world back then. And she said, uh, I'm not going to just throw this away for a while unless I know you really do, in fact, like me. So it didn't take me any time to say, oh, God, yeah, let's let's marry. So two days before we moved over there. So that was her her right. first experience with me. And it was really like living in a dump. It was back the, the dorms in Beijing back then were it was really the first time us Westerners were really living there. I mean, it was just you know, the toilets. There were holes in the floor and no showers available except in the middle of the campus. And it was it was pretty it was pretty tough for her. But she she proved herself. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. If she could survive that, I mean, you know, I don't know what else you could ask. Right. That's that's pretty intense by even even by, you know, standards back then. Right. That's uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Excellent. It's, so it makes sense. You know, that opportunity came up and, you know, and you went for it and that led to a long and successful career as a news anchor from that point. So that was probably what, 1992 or 91. And then, you know, you continue to do that for, for a very long period. Yeah. You know, it's a, you know, journalism was uh, one that I, I think in the beginning, I thought, what about, what the hell have I done? You know, I, I sucked. I was so bad at it. And my first uh, experience reporting uh, up in Northern California, 
turned out to be a real nightmare. I was pretty crappy at, uh, at reporting to be on television to report when I started. I mean, I'd been a lawyer. I, I was writing these, you know, two minute pieces that would look like long documents, you know, that I'd done trying to file something for a trial. <laughs> so it took me, so it took me some time to figure out how to do this television news thing. I, I had not even watched it much before I had this chance to do, you know, to work in it. And over in China, so I was like, how the hell am I going to do this? I have to be short and sweet, you know? And then I had to, I was a one man band too. So I had to shoot everything. I drove the live truck out there. I came back, edited the piece, you know, wrote the piece. Then I got to go to a live you know, report. And it was, it took a lot to learn. So I had to work my way up. Let's put it after about three years before I got uh, a job in the, in the, you know, the national report reporting, you know, with ABC news uh, national. So I was at that time, I, I kind of figured it out. Uh, but then it, uh, all I really wanted to do was to get back overseas and go to report on places far away where you know, events are changing the, the world of ours for America. And so what it started out in reporting out of, out of Asia turned into us being moved over to London to go report out of what was happening in Europe at the end of the Cold War. So, you know, it was, it was, this was in the late 1990s. So the Soviet Union had fallen apart. You know, Germany was back together as a single country. Yugoslavia was now changing and splitting apart into, into separate independent countries. And so I started really covering what was happening in Yugoslavia. And then next thing that changed all of us, and I think probably you too, Derek, was, was 9-11. And it's hard to believe that was 20 years ago, but that's the event that completely put me and I think you in, in the direction of war. And that, that became my career really for the next 10 years, just covering everything from Afghanistan to Iraq and anywhere else there would be a conflict. And some of that would be throughout Asia as well. But those were the two wars that completely changed everything for me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was definitely transformative. I can remember, you know, where I was when it happened and I was in my senior year of high school and working at that point, I was still, still applying to the Naval Academy and, you know, and we were dealing with that. So yeah, it certainly changed my life. Yeah, you know, sure. it's, it's, I'll, I'll never forget that I was, I was actually in our ABC London bureau at the time I was sitting in my office, which is away from the main area of the rim where all the other ones were, were sitting. I was in my office and I saw this report. Actually, somebody called me back there and said, you watching the news? I said, I didn't watch it. What happened? They said this, this little plane ran into one of the towers in, in Manhattan. I said, really? So I went out to the rim and we're all watching this news that came out. We thought maybe it was a Cessna or something. We didn't think about this being a huge you know, commercial plane hit. And while we're watching, the second plane hits the other tower. And we just looked at each other. And because we've been covering this for the last two years, so this is Osama bin Laden, and we know where he is. We knew that he was in Afghanistan from previous reports. We said, so we literally within the next five hours, I left the office, said goodbye to my wife and my four kids, and uh, and got on the next British Air flight to Islamabad in Pakistan to report out of there until we had the chance to get into Afghanistan because it was still you know, being controlled by uh, you know, Taliban. 
and uh, we were not able yeah. to get in for the next five weeks. Then I was able to report on, on Afghanistan. So that was the that was the ma the major change in my life, and my family. Yeah, thinking about that too, and looking back on that, I'm curious what what it was like for your family, and you know how you know you're you're flying around to these different places, right? And and some of them are more chaotic and more dangerous than others and things. And so how did you and Lee talk about that? And, and like, what, what did you guys do as a family to, you know, like what was kind of the, the culture, the expectations like within your family as you were doing yeah, this work? I think, I think people, reporters, and obviously, you know, military mm -hmm. too, for deplo de deployments, et cetera, is that me, I mean, obviously my deployments were either short or long. It was, it was only, but it was very sh much shorter than it was ever was for you. I was, you know, then I was in Afghanistan for about 17 weeks. And I remember when I came back, that was right after 9-11. And I came back to London and my kids and Lee had not seen me for 17 weeks. And we just said, you know what, let's just, let's go on a, a deserved vacation for a week. And we went to Ireland and just wandered driving across the country of Ireland. And all I wanted to do was kind of hang out with the sheep and drink Guinness and, and uh, you know, watch rugby games on the street. I mean, I just, we, I did not want to watch any news or read any newspapers, even magazines. I just didn't want to even get, I just want to get out of that word, world for a while, for a while, because that was kind of like a form of post-traumatic stress really for for us that had been there. Although on the other hand, that was also, it was a story of, of, of rising hope. You know, there was a, we knew it went to a place that was horrific. And in the beginning we saw as the Taliban had retreated away from, you know, the, the, all the major cities that we went to, uh, we saw that there was actually good hope. You know, finally these schools of, that were horrible and only with boys and largely religious are now being stepped up another level. And so we thought, okay, this is, this is, this can only get better. The search was on for Osama bin Laden, and that was the one that took, you know, a long time to finally find him. But, you know, this we saw that the, you know, the U.S. forces and the U.S. civilian world, uh, diplomatic will di diplomatically will have a huge impact on the country of Islam on Asp Afghanistan. So um, it took. So I finally got back. So it was a it was a kind of PTS, but it was also filled with with hope. And so I went back to Afghanistan multiple times after that. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And and you know, any line of work that's you know whether it's the military or first responders or medical professionals or even you know like like your role, right? Like engrossing yourself in intense work. That stress, you know, in my experience, what I've seen is it's it's no different, right? It manifests itself the same way and requires the same types of, of care, self-care to, to, re to recover from. Right. And so, yeah. and I just, yeah, but I, the kids, with you know, I think, I think you're the same, you know, I, it was the biggest impact that you worry about is as your kids, how your kids going to do when you're not there. You know, I, I know that so many friends were deployed over there for, you know, it, where it may be Afghanistan, Iraq, especially that they're away from their their kids for 13 months, you know, and then they come back and what's the impact on, on the kids. A lot of people tell me that, Oh, I was a war, I was a war correspondent for a while, but as soon as I had kids, there's no way I'm doing that anymore. That's like so stupid. And then, then I'd say, Oh, whoops, <laughs> I still did. Even when I have four kids, so I still did it. But I also know that the, the kind of the studies of that, there's resilience for the kids that we don't really remember. We kind of underestimate 
that the kids really, in terms of the studies is that I've read, is that it's not so much how much time you spend with your kids. It's more what's the quality of the time you spend with them. You know, it's better to have fascinating stories to tell and a lot of hugs and kisses for them while you're there, as opposed to sort of irritating each other. It's kind of like when I do when I hang out with Lee for too long, you know, my wife, then I, you know, then I realize it's not, I got to step up the quality of the time, not how much time I spend with her. But the kids are amazingly resilient, the kids are, you know, unless there's some major yeah. problem that's specific, you know, but I think the time away from them, I didn't feel like that was damaging to my kids. Of course, when I was, when yeah. I was hit by an IED, that was a little different, but that's a different story. Yeah. Yeah. And love to hear that story. Obviously you've told it a, a few times, so I'm sure some of the listeners already know and things, but, you know, we'd love to to dive into that and really, really to understand what this did, you know, to you personally, physically, and mentally, and, and really how you were able to recover from that and move forward and, and what it was like. What happened with the, uh, when I was hit in, in Taji? Yeah. So now, so yeah. fast forward, there was uh, after covering Afghanistan many times, then there was the invasion of Iraq in, in 2003. So we, I, I went, I was embedded with the, uh, with the Marines in that one, uh, with the first LAR as we came from, uh, Kuwait heading towards Baghdad. And that was a very successful coverage. I mean, that was also a pretty quick, much faster than anybody thought that that would be a, a, a successful invasion much quicker than we, we really thought, which is kind of, I guess that's interesting. And I just thought about this, that, you know, the Taliban just had a very fast victory over us, you know, the America in this withdrawal that just so happened. It was kind of like the same over, you know, after, after over Iraq back in 2003, swept in and pretty much was within a couple of weeks that this whole thing was over. And, you know, Hussein was now gone. So, that was so quick that the coverage of Iraq afterwards, again, it was filled with some kind of hope that maybe all of these these uh, these programs and things would get the country better, you know, make it better. But there's huge types of, of mistakes diplomatically the U.S. did. So that war did not, you know, turn out exactly lightning fast either, you know, be finally pulled out. But I was covering Iraq several times and one of the one that was that was certainly an important story was that the US and the Iraqi military were working together to ultimately give the power over to the Iraqi military and give them their their independence again so they're going village to village together you know the US forces and and the Iraqi military so i decided to go along with them on one of their missions out to one of the villages just outside of Taji in Iraq and I was there in a tank in the front of this eight vehicles. And it was actually driven by the Iraqi tank and decided to stand up out of the out of the tank along with my cameraman, Doug Vogt. Uh, my producer and my sound guy were down inside the vehicle still when we're driving down this road and the driver turns to us and says, listen, you guys should probably get back inside because this might be an IED area right here. But it was only three seconds after he said that we didn't have the time to go down and suddenly it exploded off to the left side. Um, and the, the force of that power knocked me out instantly also with my cameraman, Doug Bo, but he was only out for about three seconds and fell down on the top of the tank. 
I was knocked out and that was followed by rocks and metal from the explosion that kind of pierced through the left side of, of my face and shattered the completely left side of my jaw. Little pieces of, uh, of, of rock went all the way through past the, my, my veins, um, all the way through to the other side and landed on the other, other, other side. Miraculously, it didn't go through the vein on that side, uh, but they didn't realize that for the next two weeks. So after that, up to that blast, I was also been blinded in the upper right-hand corner of both my eyes because of the impact. Um, and I just, I mean, another inch forward, an inch back, I probably would not be alive or maybe untouched. I don't know. But I was right in that position where it gave me um, the kind of impact that made me unconscious for the next 36 days. But the amazing thing is that, you know, th that it's remarkable that we're alive, partly because those rocks did not completely shattered my veins and arteries. Um, but also that the way that they got us out of that vehicle was a, a kind of a, a miracle. And it, and it reflects on what the military were doing for us while we were uh, out there on, on the fields is after that blast went off and I fell inside of the tank, I woke up after about a minute, I looked up at my, 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 producer. I said, are we alive? And he said, yeah, you're alive. And that's really the last thing I remember until 36 days when I woke up in Bethesda Naval. But at that moment is all of the, but the Iraqi and the U.S. force guys got out of their vehicles. And right when they did, they were open fired on by all four corners by these insurgents that detonated this thing. They fired back. We don't know what happened to those guys, but they just shattered them. I mean, they just sent them off or what they didn't. So basically one the battle nobody was hit so these guys were not very good sh shot shooters i guess and then they got us in got into the tank pulled us out uh a helicopter was pulled in was called in they landed about a mile away got us into a, another uh vehicle rushed us down to the helicopter got us off went to baghdad then on to balad uh where they had to remove, remove 30, 16 centimeters of my skull because my brain was expanding and I would not have lived if they had not had the chance to do that. You know, the, the kind of technology, you know, medically had never been done before. You know, I was kind of, I kind of joke a little bit is that the, you know, the doctor, the surgeon who actually took my skull off was able to do it so fast. I was the third one of the day doing the same thing for him. <clears throat> who back in New York, you know, does, does, three of these a day. Um, but he did. And also there's no malpractice, you know, thing. So they can do whatever they want, you know, in the middle of this war. So they're able to save me. And then they rushed us up to, up to Germany and then back to Bethesda Naval. And the next thing I knew was seeing my family five weeks later when I was able to wake up again. Wow. Yeah. I, I feel like I can empathize yeah, quite a bit can. with some of the story. You're my um, brother, man. You, know, I, you got the story too. I gotta yeah. say, you know, you're. We we got a lot in common, so people may not know, but we both have have a set of twins. So I yeah. got twin boys. You have twin girls. I think they get married. We're both later? injured. And... Except mine are 21. I think you. I said my twin girls are 21. I don't. I think your boys are too young for them. Yeah, they, they got a little ways. So you never know. Someday, similar situation for both for me and and the sergeant to my left when we were both injured. You know, and I think about that, and that's something really interesting to think about when you, you consider it right, is you can go through emotions during the recovery process and think, you know, 
oh man, if it was an inch away, I'd have been fine, right? You know, and feel sorry for yourself, or you can look at the other side and say an inch the other way, and I'd have been dead instantly, right? And so, you know, that was the situation for me, and also for for Rick, the sergeant as well. He was shot through the neck in the left side and out the right, and due to technology, they were able to revive him actually on the battlefield. So they actually had to use cellox or this other packing and clotting agent to stop the bleeding where you obviously can't put a tourniquet in his neck and you know and he's recovered made a full recovery because of that and so Mm -hmm. very fortunate to to be alive and and that's how i choose to to view it right because that's that's the reality i think and that you know can lay a good foundation for for recovery and so and so i'm curious you know you were in this induced coma for for this period of time what was what was the mindset like or the attitude like did you how did you, you and Lee feel, you know, as you, you awoke from this and began, began your recovery process and, you know, given the outlook uh, of the nature of the injuries that you, you'd sustained? Yeah. You know, I mean, this is, I would say about, you know, like you and I being hit with different, different, uh, impacts of it, you know, all the, all the words that you just said, I can't remember a lot of these words. It kind of almost feels like I'm a pretty good, uh, imitator of somebody that still has vocabulary. You know, but I just, uh, there's so many names and words. I just can't remember now because mine was a, was an impact to the left, which gave me aphasia, which is my inability to remember words, especially a lot of the letters kind of get, get twisted around. I, I almost sometimes know the number of letters in the word I'm trying to remember, but I can't. There's a, a synonym that I know to make the same expression that I can do it and make it seem to people. But you can see even a lot of the words I was saying earlier, it's just calling the country the wrong country, even the name of my own kid, you know, sometimes uh, my brother's Mike and my dad's Mac. Every time they're together, I get them backwards all the time. But yeah, so you and I have a different impact. You know, your paralysis and mine was aphasia. And then a million friends you do, the, the ones that were burnt, those ones that are the amputees. And I guess we can only do the jokes with each other that most people can't do, you know, so which is kind of a nice thing, right? Yeah, <laughs> but, for sure. Yeah. And, yeah. and- to your point, though, I, I, I confuse my son's name sometimes, too, because we have Hudson and Hunter. And you know, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. they don't seem to mind. It's like yet, my, my but... mother. My mother had four sons and she would she only wanted them simple. And she didn't she think a name like Derek would have been radical for her. You know, it's because she she so she had a Dave, Bob, Mike, Jim. That's the name of her four boys. <laughs> so, nice. you know, it was, uh, it was very simple for her. Anyway, you know, yeah, yeah. it's been it's been pretty amazing about the recovery that you're talking about that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so, so when you, you woke up and you know, what was that like? Or do you, are you able to remember any of that or like what, what like, or even through the first year or two after your recovery, what, what was it like or how did you approach that? Yeah, I, I remember a lot of it. I just wonder how many, how much I will, I would remember if I hadn't told it, you know, and just kind of lived through oh. it and did a whole hour documentary about what had happened in the next within the next that year when I woke up but yeah I can remember I do remember a lot of things that happened you know sometimes it's not really it's maybe it's a near-death experience that I had but I know my brother my brother Jimmy when he came into my room right after right after I'd woken up and he said so how, how was it where you were what do you remember I said I don't really remember stuff but it was just like this this whiteness and there was no pain. I know that I don't really remember specific things that's happening, but I said, Jimmy, you no, know, it's, I think it's a totally fine place to go back to. I, I, in some ways I'd like to go back there. You know, I was, you know, I woke up, I was, I was, I could not sleep. I was sleeping about one hour a day. I was in terrible pain. 
but the injections of course killed, you know, was able to deal with that. But I mean, I just, I just realized that I was ecstatic that I was alive and there was my family. There's my wife came in, my brothers, my friends, um, to see me. And I thought, wow, this is good. But I had no idea for four days. I didn't know that the left part of my skull had been removed. They kind of kept that away from me. They put me in a helmet I had to wear all the time. So I didn't really know what was happening, but I just remember was ha happy, you know, but I, the story is very clear and for almost for everybody. It's great when you wake up and you think, oh my God, I'm so up, but you don't really know how bad you are or how much you've changed compared to what you were before. And so that launched into pretty, you know, massive depression, you know, to know that your life is completely the same. I can only think that it was the same with you. Um, you know, lucky that you'd be alive, but you have to fi you figure out a way, which is what your, I think your, your mission now in some ways was to, to remember that there's resilience and there's, there's some things about catastrophes and tragedies that can turn out to, to create things that are some things that are better. And, you know, I just felt like I'd been thrown even closer together with my family, um, having been away for so long. And uh, I was able to get the chance to, to meet with them. I, you know, my little twin girls back then, this was 15 years ago. <clears throat> you know, my little girls were five and a half years old when I was hit. And so I don't know, how old are your, your, your twin sons again? They're four. four they just yeah. turned four. So it's kind of like the yeah. same thing. There's these adorable little twin girls, you know, back at home. I mean, older two kids are also extremely uh, adorable too, but they were, you know, <laughs> they were like, tw you know, 10 years old, 12 years old, but the little girls, I had a chance to spend more with them. And Lee, my wife uh, told me the story later that she was there with Nora, who is one of our twin girls who actually has some hearing issues. Her doctor found that she had deafness in her ears. And as she came up to Lee, she says, hey, mom, dad has these huge scars on the side of his face, these rocks in his, in his cheese and his cheek. She goes, no way, sweet. Those are popping out, you know, one at a time. Because his back is all scarred, you know, he's torn skin and all of that on his back. She says, don't, sweet. That's all right. That's all. That's getting better, too. And then Nora said, but, you know, mom, I think dad loves me more now than he ever did before. So, I mean, you had this thing that maybe my... My thoughts about my kids, my family, I felt more thank and kind of a blessing to have them. Yeah. And I think maybe this thing had a good impact that way, you know, on me. For sure. And I also thought yeah. that in and some ways I also felt like I was, I was, I was, I had a new group, a new world that I was now in where I was able to meet, you know, people like you and I, you know, that, you know, lived through. A, a terrible event that changes very quickly. And we have a way to relate to each other than, than I really ever expected. You know, it's almost irrelevant where I was civilian and you guys were military. We were all suddenly exactly the same. You know, 95% of our country are civilian and only 1% are, are, are veterans, you know, but now suddenly I was put together like, like brothers, you know, and it was, that was kind of a, yeah. a pretty amazing, uh, chance and we also on that third floor of bethesda naval we were surrounded by you know almost all marines that were badly blasted a lot of them were unconscious they were there with their family 
And we saw some examples, though, that there wasn't really enough being done for them. They weren't getting as much attention. Sometimes they were, I had 44 years in my life at that point, and I had a pretty uh, great chance to live because I was older than almost all the other ones on that floor with me. And I was, uh, I had a company that was still, you know, behind me. And I, we realized they're not necessarily getting the same kind of treatment that we did. And then when people went, were going back to their villages, to their towns, their cities, when they got out of the hospitals, we realized the same kind of experience I was getting. It was like the, the, the excitement and happiness to wake up thinking you're not going to be alive and you have your family there. And suddenly you got to go back to the reality world where now you got to find a different path for your life. You can't do the same job you did before. And you don't have what we had while we're in, in war zones. We knew we wake up in the morning, we get in the vehicle, shoot things, edit things, get it on TV, go to sleep. Next day, same thing. Same people, a nice team team of four that I had. And you guys had whole units, you know, that you were side by side with for months and you knew what you're doing. Suddenly you're in a gigantic new world um, without the same abilities. Uh, people had different views of you. It was a kind of new reality because you're that you had to deal with. And that we knew that that's something that had to be worked on. We need to get something to be done about it. So that's when we decided we're going to start a foundation to do it. So that was the other good thing about what happened. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's awesome. And, and you, you communicated that very eloquently and, and I just want to highlight and, and reiterate what you said, which is, and which is kind of one of the, the goals of this podcast for me is, is, resilience within people. And so a lot of people look at these types of events and think, oh, I feel sorry that that happened, or I'm sorry that that happened to you. And it can sometimes kind of create like a victim mindset in some regards. But but the other way to look at it and the way I've tried to, to frame this is like, don't be sorry for me, right? Like my life has changed and, and I've turned this into an asset, right? This is now an experience that I have. It has changed my life in a lot of ways, good and bad. But if I choose to make this a positive thing, so many good things can come out of this, right? And so instead of focusing on what what you were or you thought you you had been, you know, figuring out a new way to figure out what what you can be or how to move forward with your life, right? And so for me, you know, the same same situation. My wife was there, I was elated to be alive, went through cycles of grief and, you know, because I couldn't be a Marine Special Operator, but found a new passion and a new purpose moving forward with my life. I'm fortunate to have the opportunities that I have, the family that I have, you know, having kids now, being around. And and also more importantly, I think when you go through these sorts of things, you gain perspective, right? And perspective on life and gratitude. And, you know, and that can make your, your relationships that much better. And that's what's really cool about, you know, the foundation and the, the people that you get to meet, right? What you're talking about is uh, it's almost almost like a, a superhero strength, right? Like if you've been through challenging things and made it on the other side, you now like you're stronger, you're more resilient. You have this, this hidden ability to move forward and, and you know what you're made of, right? And you know how to deal with that. And that can be totally empowering as opposed to, to demoralizing or, or depressing or, or victim victimizing in those regards. So, so that's, that's amazing. That's uh that's awesome. Well, Derek, and, uh, Derek, you're, you're, you're kind of in like some ways you're like, you know, a therapist, you know, a psychologist, because your message needs to be known. And, you know, this is because this is a hard to convince 
it's one I've still, to some degree, I still haven't really done what I really need to do, which is find a new path and give up this illusionary dream of going back to exactly what you did before, you know, and that's the one that's really was extremely hard for me in the beginning that why can't I just go and do what I did? Listen, next next year, I'll have exactly the same. My, my aphasia will be cured. I'm going to get every ability I had before. And I don't, I just don't have it. And the big one, the challenge is to try to, to really grab onto and follow, follow this word of resilience, you know, to try to figure out a way to actually to come back to something other than what you were at before. And that's one that it's one of the most important things. I mean, that's what you do when you go to a therapist, right? That's when you go and go to the shrink and say, you know, walk this through because why the hell is it that I feel sad about not being able to do what I used to do? And, you know, you have, who would have thought a million, you know, 15 years ago or 10 years or whatever that, uh, what year was yours again when you were hit? It was in, uh, 2012. So 2012, almost nine yeah. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So if you look back, then who would have thought you and I'd be sitting here on a podcast talking to each other and the podcast started by you and I still have a job as a reporter. Who would have thought it, you know, because we never thought it. Well, maybe actually right when we woke up, we assumed that you would be back doing the same job you did with the military. And I thought I was going to be back anchoring some you know, show on ABC. But we, both of us had to realize yeah. it's not going to be that. But then when you then you're taking a huge descent where you think you're not going to be able to do anything. Right. Uh, yeah. And then you got to yeah. figure out the resilience thing that you're talking about. Is then you got to figure out a way to actually do something, <laughs> you know, to, mm -hmm. to do a different dream, right? And that's a real yeah. challenge. It's yeah. really hard to figure it out. Yeah, it takes time, and and you know that was exactly what what I experienced was you know when I had gotten injured, I had been shot through the shoulder, and the bullet was in my spine, lodged next to my spinal cord. But they said, hey, it didn't cut your spinal cord, you know, and so we can't tell you definitively what's going to happen. All we can say is, is, you know, if something's going to recover, most of the recovery, the data shows most recovery occurs within the first two years. And so this left me this like positive window of thinking, which was great because initially I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, recover faster than anybody else who's ever had a spinal cord injury before. I'm strong, you know, no, you know, I'm going to I'm just going to walk out of here in six weeks, right? But when that doesn't happen, right, then it becomes incredibly demoralizing, right? And then, you know, days turn to weeks, weeks to months. And, you know, if you're missing goals, whether it's in your control or not, you know, it can be really challenging. And so figuring out how to move forward with that proper mindset and being resilient is important. And and I think the the beauty of, of what we're talking about, too, and one of the, the goals of, of why I want to share these stories is because it's not just for people like us, right? It's not for just for veterans or for people that have been injured in combat, this is a human condition, right? So if you're human and you live long enough, you'll experience trauma, loss, tragedy, suffering, right? The only difference I think, you know, that I have is that because I'm young and been through this, you know, when I was relatively young, I've learned very early on what that's like and how to deal with it. And so that's, that's the benefit of, of doing this. And so, yeah, figuring out what's, what's next, it can be hard too. And, and so you decided to start the foundation and that, that was what was next for you guys. And how, how did that come together? And, and what were, what were the, the roots of the, the Bob Woodruff foundation? 
Yeah, it was, it was it was really my family while I was still out. You know, when like I said, they saw things happening that uh, was a little shocking to them. That you know, our our government and us, all of us, were not really prepared for these kinds of asymmetrical wars where we have these huge pieces of machines and we have power, and all they did is they hid in the bushes and had major impact on you know our success. You know, fighting these wars. And the bigger one that we finally realized was in these asymmetric wars, since they are all smaller blasts on the side of the road, this is not us getting either dead instantly or alive and untouched. We had this huge gray line, which was injured. Uh, the ones like you and I were visible, you know, uh, because we had a physical wound. And then there's ones that just shake the brain around or those that are amputations where you can speak fine. I mean, everybody had different kinds of wounds, which meant you're not dead, you're alive, but you've got complicated problems to deal with for the rest of your life that are so much more complicated. You know, they're much more difficult. So we realized that this is, this is completely not... Our government is not ready. The VA is not ready. The DOD, DOD is not re ready when they go back to their towns because they were unbelievable at the Bethesda Naval. The hospitals were fantastic. You know, Balad over there in the, on the sands were in, incredible that only the military, I think, could have pulled off. But they were not ready for how many that would come back with invisible wounds or visible that are very difficult to treat. And so that's what we decided. We, we Let's try to at least get the civilian world to try to help on this because in some ways in mine was concussion. You know, mine was aphasia. Mine was the impact on the brain while yours was on the spine. And and ours in terms of dealing with brain injuries like that was not really from the military, but they were from the civilian world where, uh, you know, they'd done 150,000 of these kind of concussion cases a year dealing with, these types of problems. So we needed to combine those together. And that was the first thing was to deal largely with what I had, which was traumatic brain injury. And then as month followed by month, and we started this foundation that we realized that uh, there's a lot of complicated problems, you know, and everything from paralysis to amputation to blindness, uh, these, these, and then of course, PTSD, you know, post-traumatic stress. Those were all ones that we launched attached ourselves to. So we just decided just to raise money and get it to the most effective and best organizations out there that are doing it. That was the goal. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And from that underpinning, you know, you guys have built a very successful organization that's given back and, and created an opportunity for, for people to get involved and to help these organizations in a wide variety of, of very complex issues. Right. So so when I was doing some research before this discussion, seeing all the different things that you've supported, it seems like the niche has been, you know, finding things that are very complex that aren't already solved by the government and either, you know, weighing in and, and you know, writing a check or, or weighing in on the, the political side and the advocacy side as well, you know, using all the gifts and the talents and the platform and the networks that you guys have. So everything from, you know, like you said, post-traumatic stress to TBI to other things which which aren't as obvious either, right? Which is like in vitro fertilization, you know? And so for the longest time recently, that's 
the legislation has changed and the VA now can provide funds to help support IVF in, in certain cases, but for the longest time they, they had nothing, right? And you guys stepped in to fill that void. And so people that come back, you know, for more, and I haven't seen the data on this yet, but I'd be interested to see how many people are taking advantage of it and how many people know about it or, or how many services are provided. But a lot of people come back and, you know, these injuries extend over into fertility issues. And so for people that have gone and served the country injured, you know, and now the VA is not like legislated, not allowed to provide money to help, you know, for whatever reason, whatever political or, you know, bureaucratic reason, right. You guys step into fill the voids like that. And that's, that's admirable. Yeah. You know, that's uh, my, my wife, Lee has been in love with this since when this began and, and she, uh, yes, this is, this is about the only one that we're trying to, that we're trying to involve in, in politics to try to get the VA and the DOD to back this because if they were doing to some cases, they're allowing it for active, but not the inactive. They were already gone. And that was, it was shocking to us, you know, because those are the ones who would need it the most. They've left the military and now they want, and they're you know, paralyzed from the war and they can't even have a baby. So why don't we do everything we can to, to back it? So we started funding about these treatments. And I think, I don't know the number now, but I think about 20 babies have been born because of this. And I mean, how, how good does that feel? You know, it's like, as you said earlier, you've changed, just changed when you had those beautiful babies of yours. So that was, that was very satisfying. You know, we've raised about more than a, you know, a hundred million dollars now that we find its way out to where it's needed. So IBF of course is one that was a huge story that we wanted to pursue it strongly. So what we've done in the beginning, dealing with, with traumatic brain injury, and then we went to the other issues that we start to be, to get worse and well-known. And the most recently we've shifted a lot of the funding that we've done uh, last year was because of the veterans that are impacted by COVID because that was leading to a lot large, especially the older veterans from, from Vietnam, for example, there's homeless, homelessness and hunger that we had to deal with. And then within the last few months, our last big funds were going to organizations that are dealing with the kind of depression and PTS that's emerged because of what's happening in Afghanistan. There's a lot that had served in Afghanistan, you know, uh, have launched into anger and depression because they felt like what they'd done for 20 years or now had done nothing. So that's the kind of PTS issue that we're now trying to function, you know, focus on now. You know, people want to do something. Everybody out there wants to do something for the veterans. But there's, there's, there were about 46,000 of these organizations were formed after the peaking of the war back in 2007, right after I was wounded. So everybody had one, you know, but nobody didn't really know if they worked. They didn't know how good they were. Some were fantastic. Some were not so good. Some ones were scams, whatever it may be. So we're just trying to find the ones for people to want to give, the ones that they would really be proud of and, and happy with. So now we're just trying to find the ones that are the best. So NFL, for example, which has had a lot of requests from different organizations to get funding from them, they decided they're just going to go ahead and put us in charge of finding them for them. So, so the NFL is not given whatever money they're doing for the veterans so we can put them in the right direction. So that's kind of like a great honor. Actually, the country of Qatar has done the same thing. You know, it's got the biggest U.S. military base in all of the Middle East that, that our, our military uses. And so they're a big backing 
backers of the uh, of the veterans. So they too have done the same. You know, they just don't have the time That's and awesome. ability to search for the ones that are working. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a whole podcast I hope to do on itself of how to vet nonprofits and, and how to, to, to deploy your capital wisely if you so choose, but it's, it's clear and you can see it very transparently on, you know, the Bob Woodruff Foundation website, but they go through a very rigorous selection process and a screening process for any of these nonprofits that are seeking funding uh, from them um, to ensure that all these dollars are going for maximum impact to these veterans organizations. And, it's also noteworthy too, because, you know, a lot of people have their cause, right. And they just want to start another organization, but you guys took the step of saying, Hey, we don't need just another organization. Let's just help and use our platform and vet the ones that are out there so they can be more effective and more well-resourced in the delivery of their, their programs. So, so it's pretty, pretty amazing. Woodruff foundation is, uh, it was admirable that you guys decided not to just start another veteran service organization to run your own programs, but to help use your platform and your network to resource other veterans organizations and make them more impactful in delivering the programs that they offer. And, uh, and I was also saying that the, the vetting process for any of those organizations is, is, you know, at the highest level. And so that if anybody feels inclined to, to learn more about the organization, they can do so on your website and see, you know, where the money's going and, and, and how all these programs are, are impacting veterans across the country. Well, Derek, I have to remind you and everybody watching and listening to this is that you are the superstar of one of our big fundraising events uh, a few years ago out there in in uh, Madison Square in New York, where we had you know Springsteen comes out there to to entertain amazing and you know, comedians, and then there's Derek that comes up on the stage to give probably one of the most amazing speeches. Of course, because your wife was there next to you too, which was fantastic. But when you came out with a device that enabled you to stand, I think everybody in the in the place you know stood, and uh, and just your your speech was perfect. But anyway, you 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 like I said, you inspired people. You still do. So I just I just can't thank you enough for for what you're doing and your performance with us and you invited me to be on this program with you. I mean it's an honor, man. Uh, the honor is all mine, seriously and and like you said earlier the our paths wouldn't have crossed, right? If we didn't have these experiences and these shared challenges, you know, that we we encountered. And so I'm very fortunate to to have had that happen and to have had the opportunity to, to meet you and, and, and your family and, you know, your entire network of amazing people, um, with the foundation. So, uh, and I remember what I said then, and I think it's still and and as relevant or, or more relevant today. And so a lot of people are, are interested in helping and supporting and everything else. And I think the way that they can support or, or show people, you know, that they're, they're involved is, is to do something right. To get involved in your community, you know, whether it's the military or not, just, just do something for people other than yourself, right. Whether it's donating to veteran service organizations, volunteering in your community, helping out, just take, take an action that shows that you care about the country, right. You don't have to sign up and go enlist tomorrow, you know, just be a good American, right. Or, or, or you know, do, do something for, for the country, right. Cause that I think more than anything can help create the environment where veterans feel valued, right? They don't, 
we don't we don't want everybody to sign up. We I, I'm I'm glad that we don't have you know a draft and we have an all volunteer force, but just just those little things go a long way to show people like us that 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 everyone else is vested in seeing the country succeed, regardless of political parties, affiliations, anything else. You know, just mm-hmm. being supportive of of so much that that we go and fight for, right? And so, yeah, and that was an amazing event, and was very fortunate and really glad my wife was there to share it with me and, and to be able to come and. <laughs> And see over there, so it's phenomenal. And so that uh, that event too, just to to mention it in case that people aren't aren't aware, I think tickets will be going on sale. You you will be doing this. This is an annual fundraising event in New York City called Stand Up for Heroes, where you guys bring the world's best comedians, some of the biggest names, some of the world's best entertainers like Bruce Springsteen. I don't know who's on the ticket for this year, but but every year it's amazing. And you know, and you you do this to raise money for the Woodruff Foundation. Bob Woodruff Foundation to help all these veterans organizations. So, so if you are opening it up for ticket sales, it's going to be even more limited this year. So get them fast if you get them. Very good marketing, brother. Very good marketing. <laughs> Keep it going. And, and <laughs> Say it again. I get my ticket. Hopefully, I'll, I'll be the first one to buy a ticket and uh, you know sign up to come see you. And what it's uh, November. You just November posted 8th. it this morning. November eighth. Yeah. And awesome. you don't have to buy anything. You're in, baby. Well, <laughs> thank you. Then I'm definitely coming. Definitely coming to see you. So yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. Love to have you there. Well, Bob, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Truly appreciate your willingness to come on and share your story and share some of the lessons, the amazing lessons that you you've learned. Love to just share with any listeners where they can learn more about you, whether it's social media or the the website. So where where can people learn more about you? Thanks so much, Derek. I appreciate it. Oh my God. Well, it's Bob Woodard Foundation, Bob Foundation.org. You can That's you can right. write it. You can write. You can get on the you can get on the Bob Foundation.org website. Perfect. And that's the way to, to to learn more about it. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't want to mess that up. And then then on that website, that's where all the information will be. So including the the ticket link, stand up for heroes, all the events, everything that's going on there, that's the best place to go. So, yeah, yeah, on the on the uh, website you can see what we're doing, what uh, uh and then how you can come to the shows if you want or donate, you know, separately. It'd be great. So you can get all that information there. For sure. Excellent. Well, this has been an episode of Forward with Derek Carrera and Bob Woodruff. Bob Truly can't thank you enough for your time and look forward to seeing you in November in New York City for Stand Up for Heroes. Thank you so much. Well, thanks, Derek. It's just great to see and listen to you again.